The Guardian. 2019 is drawing to a close, as is the second decade of the millennium. And, as much as it breaks my heart to say, it's also the end of an era for this podcast. This is the last episode of Chips With Everything. As I hope you've been able to tell over the last couple of years, I have thoroughly enjoyed bringing you some of the most important stories from the tech world, plus a few of the wacky ones. We have also been blessed with incredible listeners. It's always great to meet people who tell me they love the show, or even that it's their favourite podcast. And I'm sorry to have to be the one to tell you we won't be making more episodes. Feel free to browse the back catalogue if you find yourself missing us. Since this is our last show, I wanted to get my friend Alex Hearn on one last time. After all, he knows everything there is to know about the tech world, but he's also just great fun to have in the studio. They are new glasses. I've managed to scritch the lens already. Wow, neither of those are words. Can I try the one? You can. So I invited him to help us look back at what has been a revolutionary decade in tech, a somewhat tumultuous year for the tech industry in 2019, and just a wonderful two years of presenting this brilliant podcast. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and for the last time, this is Chips with Everything. Where were you 10 years ago? Oh God, what year is it? I was (laughs) uh, in the Christmas break of my second year at university. I was also in the Christmas break of my second year of university. That's because we're the same age. Yes, we are the same age. Yes, we're frustratingly (laughs) told our listeners endlessly. (laughs) Yeah, gosh, so I was 20, doing uni, studying philosophy. How did you feel about tech at the time? I I was still very much the sort of gadget-loving geek. Mm. That, That was what prompted me to get into technology journalism in the first place. I know I had a, like... I'd set up the Wi-Fi network for my student house. Mm. I had two games consoles in my bedroom. And I think I'd just got Rock Band for my birthday at that point. Oh my gosh, so I also had Rock Band at my university hall. It was. That that kind of uh, uh. defined certainly the, the second term of that year because it, it was both what I'd spent most of my free time doing and also repeated cause of angry arguments with the person who lived directly below me in that student <laughs> flat because playing drums in rock band is almost but not quite as irritating as just playing drums in real life. Did you have an iPhone? Because I didn't yet have an iPhone 10 years ago. I had, and if any of my old lecturers are listening to this, they're going to be very disappointed. I had an iPod Touch that I used to play in my lectures. I used to play that helicopter game. <laughs> you know, the one where you hold the thumb down and it goes, up and you let go and it goes down flappy bird version 0.1 basically i i did have an iphone i had got an iphone for my 18th birthday (laughs) and i actually i to this day i sort of slightly credit it with going to university because i had gone to an interview and staring at the name of the tutor on the door googled him on the seat outside the interview place and read up on what his expertise was and it's kind of like these days it's like yeah i mean that that's perfectly normal but back then it was just magical i could find out this man whose name i'd never heard and i could learn that he was an expert on david hume and i could casually name drop david hume i mean it's a philosophy interview so it's not that <laughs> not that wild to mention david hume but i still did it <laughs> So if you were to pick a top story from the last decade in tech, so the 2010s in technology, what would it be? So I think 
still the most important story of the last 10 years in technology is Snowden. Over the last few days, there have been a series of media disclosures of classified U.S. documents relating to the collection of intelligence by U.S. agencies and questions about the role of GCHQ. Do you know what's funny about this? What? So, I mean, obviously the story itself is not funny, but when Danielle asked us for our top stories, I also named this as my top story. There we go. And I think that's because it's firstly sort of stuff at the beginning of the decade that still has these reverberations today is always going to feel so important there are so many things that felt crucial in 2013 that today you well you have to look up the year it happened to work out when it was the snowden revelations are still important most of the the 2019 and 2020 importance of them is is in the national security sphere it remains the case that Snowden is the absolute most visibility we have had still into how the NSA and GCHQ actually work. But I think it's also really important because it it set the tone for what tech would be over the next seven years, which was much more paranoid, much more untrustworthy, and much more conflict-driven than it had been previously. I kind of said that in, in 2010, 10 years ago, I was this tech-loving gadget person, and that was how tech felt at the beginning of the decade. It mm. was apolitical, it was generally quite cool. Early adopters sometimes bought bad stuff, sometimes bought good stuff, but it was mostly a, a consumerist world of cool toys, basically. And I think Snowden was the first really important watershed story that, that started to change that. Mm. Snowden brought security, into everyone's pockets. It sparked the rise of end-to-end -end encryption. It sparked the rise of full disk encryption. Which is still something we're talking about now, right? We've only exactly. just had the conversation about governments wanting to get Facebook to remove end-to-end -end encryption. Exactly. It led to first a breakdown in trust between governments and technology companies, mm. which has never really been repaired, and a breakdown in trust between people and governments, and later and slower, a breakdown in trust between people and technology companies, which still stems just from that. At the time, we looked at the Snowden revelations and there were good companies and bad companies. On the one hand, you could see companies like Yahoo and AT&T who opened their doors and let the government in. <laughs> On the other hand, you could see companies like Microsoft who sued the government essentially as a result of this. So there was a divide, but nonetheless, it led to this feeling that, hold on, actually, this is more serious than we, we gave it credit for. The tech industry actually is a player in these games, whether it likes it or not. It led to the rise of transparency reports. It, it was the first sign of the trend that tech was going to take over the rest of the decade. Snowden's also really personally important for me just because I met Jemima Kish, the Guardian's then head of technology, mm. uh, I think two days after the first of the stories that the Guardian wrote from Snowden had been published. I met her at an event for the Guardian's uh, short-lived coffee shop that opened up in Shoreditch, <laughs> hashtag Guardian Coffee. And I was working as an economics reporter and met her then and joined the Guardian about six months later. And just that period of six months, I, I wish I'd been inside the building rather than mm -hmm. outside watching those stories break, but it was just endlessly fascinating. Another story that stood out for me um, from the past decade in tech is, I mean, I wanted to say hashtags more generally, but I picked one specifically, and that's Me Too, um, because it kind of feels like that's something that couldn't have happened without the current state of technology. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it was certainly the pinnacle of hashtag activism, mm. right, which is 
already, I think even at the time, was already a, a term that was used more to mock than praise. There was always this implication that hashtag activism was as opposed to real activism in the same way that you would get... Slacktivism. Exactly. <laughs> in the same way that you would get keyboard warriors uh, contrasted with actual protesters who get off their asses and do something. Mm. And I think you're right that, that from the tech angle, one thing Me Too showed was that it's real activism. If you're sharing a story on Twitter that causes action, that is activism. You have you have got off your ass and done the work from from a phone or from a computer, and it and it has exactly as much power and effect on a hashtag. More so, I think. I can't imagine how the Me Too movement would have happened without social media. I can't imagine what it would have looked like. Like people wouldn't have been able to go what television. They wouldn't have been allowed to. I think that the really important thing would be it, you wouldn't have had that sense of safety in numbers. Mm. It would have, it could have become a few bubbles in sort of highly networked lowercase industries. So you could sort of imagine a Me Too movement in something like the House of Commons, where you can have all of the clerks getting together, meeting and deciding to take action against bullying MPs. That, I think, would still have been possible. But what you wouldn't have had is that that cross-sectoral contagion where people in one sector see another sector doing this publicly. They start doing it publicly. It gets a snowball effect in their sector. And it's something that's still going on to this day, right? You know, mm. video games had their belated Me Too moment just this summer as stories of abuse and harassment in the gaming industry broke in exactly the same way as had happened with Me Too. And I think it's hard to see the effects of the Me Too movement because people will often be critical of it and say, well, nothing's really changed. Some of the people who've been named haven't even lost out on work, but some people have. And just because it's messy doesn't mean it hasn't done anything. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it's not been a universal sweeping away of, of abusers, mm. but some abusers have been swept away and, and that's a, a real goal. And it's certainly the case, I think, that if you are doing the sort of institutional work of writing up how a business should respond to accusations of harassment or abuse, or if you are hiring someone with a known history of it, those things, that they're, they're not going to look as big, they're not going to be as major, but people are just taking that much more care of them now. It, it's, it's an incremental change, mm. and I think in hindsight, that side of things might not look like a step change. It might look like every decade for the last 50 years, these policies and these behaviours have got slightly better institutionally. But this is the thing that prompted that change f mm. for the teens. Any other standout stories from the last decade for you? I mean, I think sort of following on from Snowden, you've got to take it to the next stage of the, the tech lash, which for me is best marked by Cambridge Analytica. A Canadian man has blown the whistle on his own company for harvesting private data from 50 million Facebook users. Christopher Wiley says... Obviously a, a hugely important story in its own right and definitely the, the largest story to have hit any individual gigantic technology company in the, the latter half of, of this decade. But also really important for sort of the moment it came and the wider effect of it. It ended the sort of downward slide that Snowden had begun of tech companies going from being cool hip engines of the economy who would fight for you against the government and would make your life better to being exactly as untrustworthy and untrusted as the government itself. 
Although <laughs> we can overstate the effect of the tech clash because actually when you look at opinion polling, by and large, the large tech platforms are still just generally quite popular. It is small sectors of media, academia, activism and politics who have really experienced the tech clash. And, and for most everyday consumers, all polling suggests that companies like Facebook, but also like Uber, like Amazon, like Google, are, if not as popular as they've ever been, certainly still amongst the most popular companies operating globally today. So have you got any maybe more positive stories <laughs> from the 2010s? Yeah, in that this this is the one that I would use to look forward to the next decade. Mm. And again, picking sort of a hallmark story that, that defined it, it would be Google buying DeepMind. Mm. in 2014. DeepMind was a an independent UK AI research startup that Google bought for somewhere in the order of £300 million, um, beating out a bid from Facebook at the time. <laughs> and for me, what that symbolizes is kind of the moment that machine learning, deep neural networks, were cemented as the technique that the technology industry was banking on for the future. DeepMind's research, it's not really shipped products. It's produced some experimental healthcare applications that have been used in the NHS, and it has famously a research arm which has won worldwide championships in games including <laughs> Go and Chess and StarCraft II, the holy trinity of traditional, <laughs> traditional games. But also just kind of from then on, Google just started plowing more and more money into this particular technique of AI and into machine learning more generally. Facebook, Apple, Amazon, all of them fought to keep up. We saw products like the Amazon Echo. We saw entire software and uh, platforms like Siri and Google Image Search and Echo being rewritten or created to use AI. And going into the next decade, it seems extremely likely that if there is any big step change in technology, it will come through AI. There, it will be, you know, another consumer application will become possible with canny application of AI that, that wasn't before. We shouldn't be looking to sort of the next iPhone for the future of tech. We should be looking to the revolution that had its major start at that acquisition. Obviously, voice assistants and the problems with those tie into some of the top tech stories from this year, from 2019. Uh, specifically, one of my top stories, which is something you reported on a lot, is the revelation that human beings have been listening to accidentally recorded snippets of people's private conversations through these voice assistants. Uh, this is one of the episodes of the podcast we did that people reference most often because of the never have sex in front of a voice assistant <laughs> tip that yep. you gave us because a zipper and zipping might be mistranslated. How, how did you feel writing all of those stories up? I think it's the biggest uh, way that doing my job has changed my mind over this year. At the beginning of 2019, I would have said that, well, A, I would have said I have an echo in my house. B, I would have said that paranoia over voice assistance was unfounded. I'd have said that, yes, they are technically always on mics, but that they don't transmit data unless they're activated. And it is ridiculous to think of them as surveillance devices. And then over the course of 2019, these stories broke. Some of them from The Guardian, some of them from Bloomberg, some of them from Belgian broadcaster TVN. And what they all said was the same thing, which is that every single company that operates a AI-powered smart speaker improves it with a call center of humans who listen to activations from it. And they listen to activations, whether they are deliberate or accidental, they transcribe them, and 
they don't really take a huge amount of care about privacy. That last point varied, you know, Apple on the one hand was probably the best about privacy in that they did quite a lot of work to strip the recordings from any user identifiable accounts. Uh, at the other end, Google was probably the worst in that they did none of that work and also a thousand actual recordings got leaked out to the Belgian TV network that first reported on it. But all of them existed in this weird bubble where they knew that their competitors were doing this work, they knew that they were doing this work, and they knew that technically this work was necessary to improve the products. And, and so they just never sat down and thought, if normal people actually knew that when their thing goes bing in the corner and they've not said anything, that means that what they were saying instead has been sent to a stranger who may listen to it, what would they think? And, and, and the absence of that empathy, the absence of stopping going, we think this is normal, do normal people think this is normal, has caused no end of pain for the industry. And that what in in general as well, not just for this specific story, but it just seems to happen again and again. Yeah. Tech companies not thinking about the ways actual humans operate. I think there's that. And I think in particular, what, what we see is the tech industry competing against itself. Mm. You know, you get Apple thinking, well, if we're the best in class, then we must be OK. You get Amazon thinking, well, if we're only a little bit worse than everyone else, <laughs> then we're probably still fine. And actually, it, it's, a, it's a very closeted industry. It's, it's very possible and regularly is the case that what the industry thinks are best practices, normal people still think are abhorrent. What about social media then? What are some of the big stories from 2019? I mean, the, the, the hellish one was the, the Momo craze, wasn't it? It is creepy, it's scary, and it's potentially deadly. Look at that image. The latest internet challenge has parents frightened tonight. Yeah, it's called the Momo Challenge, and it tries to convince children. It's already and still unclear what the scare actually was, but at various points it was that there was an image that if your kids saw it, they might try and kill themselves. It was that there was an image that some kids were using to torment other kids into killing themselves. Mm. Then it was just that there was an image which was really creepy and kids didn't like it, which was true, but wasn't helped by the fact that because of the first two viral scares, the image was on every bloody front page in the country for a couple of weeks and spread around social media endlessly. Yeah, I have some parents on my social media and I think I remember seeing people sharing it with a vague kind of, oh, parents, look out for this. Look out for this, yes, yeah. exactly. And it was... It was a really good example of the fact that although social media reporting has become regularized in the past year or so, um, or, or earlier than that, you know, news organizations have social media reporters who are real reporters. They're not anymore just they went and found someone in their 20s in the newsroom and said, can you look on Twitter, please? Mm -hmm. They are now real reporters with a real beat, real expertise that is acknowledged. It's still the case that when something is bubbles out of that, niche into the mainstream the mainstream absolutely fails the response it was a vicious cycle of newspapers publishing completely uninformed hoax stories which led to police and councils and schools reading the hoax stories and warning their parents about the hoaxes which fueled the next stage of newspaper reports saying Teachers have been warning, parents have been warning, schools have been warning about this image, all of which could be traced back to essentially one hoax report from Russia about something that was actually a completely different viral meme altogether, the, the so-called blue whale scam hoax that, that had been transformed into 
this one. I, I'm sounding vague and confused because the whole thing mm. was vague and confusing. There was no substance, nothing to cling on to other than the fact that none of this really existed. One angle of this that you mentioned there that I find really interesting and also kind of scary is this whole distance between what is happening on social media especially among young people and what the rest of us understand and what is being reported in the media you know as you and I turn 30 it can it can't be too long before we're too old to understand what is happening on social media platforms mm. which i guess uh leads us quite nicely to talk about tiktok <laughs> which has become a incredibly huge thing this year and you've been reporting on yeah and i think the the story of tiktok this year has been that it went from one crisis to a different bigger mm. crisis all while experiencing no real harm to its long-term prospects. At the beginning of this year, TikTok was fined by the Federal Trade Commission for absolutely failing to follow America's rules on how to deal with the data of under 13-year-olds. That's not something that's entirely TikTok's fault. Teens on the internet cause a child protection problem for any social network that hosts teens on the internet. Yeah, I mean, you and I were both on Neopets before we were supposed to be. So. I think I was on the Game FAQs forum most of the time, oh, which yeah, is yeah. definitely nerdier than Neopets. <laughs> But then, just as TikTok was sort of coming out the other side of that, claiming it had learned lessons, the story started breaking about it censoring in the West content that offended the Chinese state. And according to a new article in the Washington Post, the popular app TikTok may be censoring information about protests in Hong Kong. The app is. Firstly, we saw reports about uh, Hong Kong protesters and the Hong Kong protests being effectively absent on the social network at all. And then more broadly, we saw that TikTok was in a much broader fashion, censoring basically the same sort of things that it would be told to censor if it were a mainland Chinese social network. It was mm. removing content that referred to Tiananmen Square, that referred to Falun Gong, that referred to the independence of uh, Tibet or Taiwan. Its response was sort of to acknowledge the substance of the claims, which was that TikTok is not a place for politics. TikTok is a place for creativity, for harmony, for, for joy. Mm. It is a place where, unlike Facebook and Twitter, sort of American ideals of free expression and of allowing everyone to say anything so long as it doesn't cross a line, take a back seat to practically a more Chinese approach to managing a social network, which is to very heavily and in a very hands-on way moderate the content so that the network as a whole is reflective of what you want to be seen in the world. It's probably obvious that Alex and I could talk about tech stories and what they mean for wider society for hours. But I suppose we have to stop at some point. Before we do that, however, we want to look back over the last two years of this podcast and how some of the stories from our favourite episodes of Chips With Everything played out after we aired them. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Chips With Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. This week, Alex Hearn and I are saying goodbye to this decade in tech. And more importantly, as this is our last recording, reminiscing about some of our favorite episodes of Chips With Everything. For an additional treat, we were joined in the studio by producer Danielle. Hello. Hi. Hi, Danielle. This is unusual. Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, Danielle, 
people may or may not know that we are actually friends outside of working together on this podcast and sometimes Shocking. you text me and uh, just the other day you sent me a screenshot of a headline because those are the fun kinds of conversations we have <laughs> in our free time and that headline actually had something to do with one of your favorite episodes of chips yeah and it's actually one of alex's that I found out just before we came to record. At the end of June, we spoke to a guy called Carlos Maza. Definitely been the worst uh, couple of weeks of my life. Um, just an endless waterfall of um, really homophobic uh, and abusive harassment on every social media platform I have. Every and year. he works for Vox. He's a video producer for Vox. And a lot of his stuff goes on YouTube. And he created quite the fury on Twitter when he posted this thread on being very unhappy with YouTube because he gets an awful lot of abuse on it, um, particularly from another guy that is on YouTube. And every time this person would make a video about me, I would wake up to this wall of really intense homophobic and racist harassment on my social media platforms. And, and I suppose when we were talking to him, it was pride and YouTube had made a video and made it very clear that they were all for diversity and inclusion and actually their response to this Twitter thread and his accusations were that you know nothing that was happening to him was against their rules on hate speech mm. and so he very clearly said well there's something wrong with your rules on hate speech. YouTube gives the bullies that queer people spent their lives trying to run away from a megaphone so they can chase us into adulthood. But then last week, you know, it only took them six months or <laughs> so. But last week we did see something slightly different, didn't we, Alex? Yeah, they announced a new policy to deal with coordinated harassment. Essentially, they announced the Stephen Crowder policy, the man <laughs> who had been tormenting Carlos Maza. Their, their new rules basically say that if you engage in behavior which attacks someone for a protected characteristic and that behavior results in them receiving harassment, in other words, even if you are not directly doing it, if your fans are doing it or if people off-platform are doing it, you can then be penalised on YouTube even if nothing individually that you say crosses their lines on hate speech. It, it's absolutely a step forward. Um, it remains to be seen whether they enforce it. What I liked about the Carlos Maza episode was that we're often able to get these really human sides of these stories on chips that's what i really like about this podcast is that we often can get those angles like one of my favorite episodes of chips that we've done is actually last week's episode yeah. about grieving on the internet i can't imagine what it would feel like for me or for anybody grieving over their loved ones still accessing their loved ones twitter accounts to then see that somebody else was using that twitter handle and I wouldn't like to say like impersonating because they wouldn't be intentionally doing that, but it might feel like that. And getting Adam in to talk uh, about his grief and, you know, it just really affected me and I'm really glad that we were able to do that episode. Yeah, we've had a few. I mean, one of my favourite episodes as well was the Islamophobic Troll. Anyway, so I remember like I was in my old office at a very late time at night and it was just like, I should just see if I can meet this guy. Because you know, instead of just either being very upset or being very annoyed or doing what a lot of people do on Twitter or social media and ignoring the trolls. He went out of his way to find his troll and mm -hmm. sit down and talk to him in the troll's home, which, as he admitted, his mother wasn't particularly ha wouldn't have been particularly <laughs> happy about. But he, he wanted to discuss it with him. He wanted to see the man behind the Twitter handle mm -hmm. or, you know, and, and he... He wanted to know more about why someone would go to these lengths to be horrible online. And he was doing this as part of writing a book about growing up as a young British Muslim 
on the internet mm-hmm. and it was just fascinating the first half of the show we talked about going to find his Islamophobic troll the second half though we just talked about anything and everything about being on the internet for all that the internet seems like this place that we all are the internet is different for different groups mm-hmm. and that's exactly. something I think a lot of us forget a lot of the time Alex it's only ever a matter of time before we talk about video games on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, I actually didn't pick any episodes about video games for my favourites on purpose, but you did. Well, perhaps appropriately, I picked an episode that asked the question, can one be addicted to video games? Mm. Uh, which I think has become an increasingly pertinent question over the last year or so. And, and the episode that Chips did was was perfectly timed, coming out as it did <laughs> uh, in, in July 2019, exactly in the, the middle of this year. Because... Um, you were having a bit of a, not not a crisis, but you were having feelings about video games around about that time, weren't you? Post E3. Yeah, so I, I'd, I'd been to E3 in May and had played a lot of video games and kind of come out the other side realising that not all, but, but that far too many video games feel the same. Mm. Um, or at least that the ways in which they differ are not taking full advantage of what that medium can offer. We've kind of had a few, and and addiction has always been part of it, right back to Pac-Man fever, right? But it's kind of come in waves. The other big thing that's come in waves, obviously, is whether they spark violence or whether they make kids more violent or whether they create mass murderers. This year, addiction really came back to the fore, combined with, I think, for the first time, really legitimate criticism about the nature of the industry's business models. Mm. The loot crate bans that we've seen rolling out over the world sort of started coming into place almost exactly as this Chips episode was being recorded. Mm. And it's a real problem because the games industry is so historically defensive and so historically on the right side, right? Generally, they have been subject to moral panics. This, this doesn't actually feel like a moral panic at all. This feels like a worldwide multi-billion pound industry predicated on people developing uncomfortable habits driven mm. deliberately by games. But they're still not addictive. And this is the problem because our language for, for addiction and for habit forming and for companies and organizations that try to deliberately create those don't quite, in my personal view, meet the levels that that some people still like to talk about using the addiction metaphor well this is the problem right because the word addiction means different things to different people like to psychologists it means a very specific thing and even within psychology it means different things to different psychologists but you know clinically it means a particular thing to parents it just means they'd rather do that than do chores thus it's an addictive thing and these people are using the same word to mean different things which is tricky Speaking about the ways that advances in technology have affected our leisure time, I am really glad that we got to do an episode about sex robots in our time of doing chips. Danielle, was that one of your favourites? It definitely was. I just... (laughs) Sex robots have been going on for a while. It started with sex dolls and it was very simple and and we know that they were around. But what happened in April 2017 was someone decided to make artificially intelligent sex robots and in September 2018 they started being so like shipped out to customers who wanted them. My name is Harmony. I was created by Robotics. My main objective is to be a perfect companion. 
this sex robot with a lovely Scottish accent was oh, called yeah. Harmony and was created by Abyss Creations. And if you had a, a you know a meager ten thousand dollars to spend, you could have her in your home, and she could respond to you to a certain extent, given what you ask her. And I suppose I came to it quite prudishly in the beginning. Mm. You know, it's creepy. But there was a discussion to be had and it was really great to have Dr. Kate Devlin come in. Yeah, she was she great. Was fantastic. And she had written a book called Turned On, Science, <laughs> Sex and Robots. And it was just a really interesting way of looking at how we judge people and how we judge humans that use tech and why we are deciding to make tech more human and mm. what is that saying about society? I think by and large, the people that I've spoken to along the way are actually really respectful of the dolls that they have. They, they treat them as if they were real and quite respectfully they dress them up, they give them backstories, they give them personalities. And I think that episode is actually a really great example of why podcasts like Chips are so great because we both came into that with preconceptions, right, about yeah. the topic, about sex robots. We both felt kind of icky about them. But then we had this discussion and, you know, we changed our minds, like maybe not entirely. I don't think either of us is going to go home and buy one. But yeah, we have we now have different feelings about it. Right. And that's because we were able to have this discussion that we had on this podcast. And I'm sure that people listening felt the same way. Alex, if Chips had been able to continue into the 2020s, what are some of the stories that you would have liked to see us cover? What kinds of things are you expecting from the next decade of tech? I would have liked to see Chips cover following on, I guess, from the sex robots. I would love to have seen hypothetical Chips about the rise of uh, deep-faked VR sex dolls, mm. which is, I think, a very, very Chips with Everything sentence. It's uh, horrific, it's degrading, it's invasive, and it already exists. It's not a, it's not a hypothetical mm. chips with everything of 2024. It's an episode that we could record next week if there was only one more week. Should we potentially look at a more positive story <laughs> we could cover? I mean, is there anything that you're looking forward to seeing? So I think one of the problems with tech is that it's very much moved into the same sort of world as uh, as politics in that the improvements are so frequently incremental. Things are just steadily getting better. There were there were times over the last decade when I can remember when I first used an Amazon Echo. I went, my God, I genuinely didn't think this was possible. I can remember when I picked up an iPhone 4 and I went, bloody hell, you, you can't see pixels on the screen. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think we're going to get that over the next decade. I think increasingly what we're going to get is when I'm holding the iPhone 20 in 2030, I think I will look back at the crummy iPhone 11 Pro that I used to have in 2019 and I'll go, oh my God, how could we think that that, that was all cameras could be? How <laughs> could we think that batteries would only last for a day? Hopefully we'll have the sense of proportion to occasionally stop and go, actually, what's happened over the last five years in this field is incredible and we need to give it the benefit of the doubt. And it's it's a problem that the news industry has in general. We like big, sharp discontinuities rather than slow improvements. Mm. But I think that's kind of, that that's the problem that tech finds itself in now. The improvements are slow and steady and the problems are the big, sharp discontinuities. 
I guess that's why the likes of you and I kind of sometimes shrink away into video games, right? Because at least there you can be like, oh, look, this one's so much shinier than the last one. Yeah, video games is a world where people keep things secret and then release them and they're out there and suddenly you can play it and you really can go, this is like nothing I've ever seen before. And it's nice when that happens because it doesn't all that often. Well, you might not have me and Danielle reporting the biggest tech stories in future, but we've still got Alex Hearn. You can read his work at theguardian.com. Our sister podcast, Science Weekly, who we collaborated with from time to time, will attempt to pick up some of the stories that we would have otherwise covered. Look out for it on all podcatching apps. And now, sadly, I have to end the show. Huge thanks to every guest who's come on the show in the last couple of years to give us their insights and tell us their stories. And as I said at the beginning of the show, you listeners have been wonderful, and I've had the most fun talking to you all through this microphone. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can follow me on Twitter at Jerrica Weber. And don't worry, I've still got plenty to do elsewhere. If you still want to hear my voice, and you don't mind hearing even more about video games, you might like to check out my new project, Glasshouse Games. You can find out more by going to glasshouse.games. Danielle is still at The Guardian. She also produces the Politics Weekly podcast, which, as you can imagine, has been very boring these days. Okay, here we go. That's all for now. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Seriously. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.